Hey guys, real quick heads up. So for the last seven months in secret, me and Dog and Pony Show Audio have been working with Brian Brushwood, my co-host on Night Attack, who's been here before, on a brand new podcast series called World's Greatest Con. At the end of this episode, I'm going to play a six-minute feature trailer for it, which is basically the first six minutes of the first episode. I think you guys are really going to love it. If you enjoy what I do, if you enjoy this show, if you especially if you enjoy Raise the Dead, you are very much going to enjoy what we did. However, if you're already sold on this concept based on what I said, the first two episodes are available now on all podcast platforms. Greatestconpodcast.com is where you go or just search for World's Greatest Con on the podcast directory of your choice. But if it's not Apple, then also go on Apple and subscribe there because we're trying to get the uh, up those charts. Enjoy PX3. Make sure you stay to the end if you want to hear the first six minutes of World's Greatest Con. The following is brought to you by Dustin Campbell, Daily Tech News Show, Andy Beach, Nick Wood, and Craig. Welcome, everybody, to the Politics, Politics, Politics podcast for June 16th, 2021. This is your old pal, Justin Robert Young, joining you in Austin, Texas. Although not for long, heading on up to New York City over the weekend where we will cover what is essentially the race to decide the new mayor of America's largest city, New York. It's going to be a, uh, it's going to be an interesting race and we're going to cover the latest, including the fact that we now have not only a clear front runner, but quite possibly that man's closest challenger is starting to fade away. Also, Cocaine Mitch's secret plan on infrastructure revealed, question mark. Is he planning to give Biden a win so he can never get a win again? Bold strategy, Cotton. We'll see if it plays out for him as we discuss the latest on the bipartisan infrastructure negotiations and why they just might be crazy enough to work. And finally, speaking of things that are just crazy enough to work, I don't know if y'all remember this, but a couple weeks ago, in fact, I think I was still in Oakland at the time, I did a segment on how With the California recall in full swing, I thought that there was space for an influencer in the race. Somebody that's built their own fame by way of these internet 
social networks and and all that goes along with it. I said Logan Paul back then, but I, I think that the larger point was that this is possible. And we are going to have a conversation with somebody who is doing just that. He is a wealth and real estate YouTuber. A man who has taken this pretty seriously has a 20-point plan on his uh, website, meetkevin.com. It is Kevin Pafraff, who is known by Meet Kevin online. Uh, he was great. And, and we, have a, we have a very interesting conversation about uh, how serious he is about it, what his plans are, and why he believes he is uniquely suited to take on this challenge. But first, Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams has a solid lead, according to a new poll for the uh, New York City Democratic primary to determine who. The Democratic Party's nominee will be when uh, the mayoral race continues later in the fall. Effectively, this is going to be the next mayor. But the fact that Eric Adams is in the lead is only kind of a surprise. He's been leading in polls for the last three or four of them. What's interesting is who is two, three, and four. Adams has a seven-point lead over Sanitation Commissioner Catherine Garcia. She's somebody that has spiked recently. But Maya Wiley is only two points behind her at 15%. That makes the man that was the perennial leader in almost every one of these polls through the 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 winter and spring, Andrew Yang at third or sorry fourth place with only thirteen percent of the vote. So Eric Adams at twenty four, Garcia at seventeen, Wiley at fifteen, Yang at thirteen. It is the first survey where Andrew Yang has dropped beyond third place. That's bad news, ladies and gents of the Yang Gang. Things are moving in the wrong direction. And you have to wonder exactly why that is. Yang has taken more of an aggressive tact over the past few weeks. As soon as he surrendered his lead in the polls to Eric Adams, he became a lot more aggressive toward Eric Adams. Instead of turning the other cheek, he started returning fire. But that's superficial. Because to me, this looks a lot like New York City power protecting itself. What do I mean by that? According to an article on Monday from the New York Times, the current mayor, Bill de Blasio, despite the fact 
that during a debate a few weeks ago, when all the candidates were asked whether or not they would seek Bill de Blasio's endorsement, the only person to raise his hand was Andrew Yang. And everybody else on that stage took turns trashing de Blasio and his job as mayor. The current resident of Gracie Mansion is working actively for Mr. Adams and against Yang. So let's start with his working against Yang. This is quoted directly from the New York Times. Of the leading contenders in the race, the mayor is perhaps most opposed to Mr. Yang, even though he was the only candidate who said he would welcome Mr. de Blasio's endorsement. The union official who spoke on condition of anonymity said that the mayor was, quote, clearly and strictly against Yang. Mr. de Blasio has emphasized that the next mayor should have experience in government. So then what is de Blasio doing to help Eric Adams? Well, de Blasio allegedly, reportedly, according to this New York Times article, had a big confab, big gathering, with a lot of union officials. New York is a union town. You can can get very, very far, very, very fast by having the right unions endorse you. All of the unions at this meeting, including the Hotel Trades Council, District Council 37 and 32 BJSEIU, endorsed Mr. Adams a short time after de Blasio lobbied them. That brings Adams to 13 union endorsements, the most of any candidate. In comparison, Andrew Yang has two. Now, Catherine Garcia was the second place uh, recipient in that particular poll. But let's take a second real quick and talk about Maya Wiley. I spent a lot of time Discussing the perspective plight of the progressive agenda, should nobody or should should no should one of the tough on crime like Yang and Adams uh, dominate? And now she's close to second place. Although, to be fair, right now, based on the polling, it seems like we don't really even have a two horse race like we did maybe a month ago, where Yang and Adams were battling it each other. We've got a clear front runner here and his name is Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams. Then there's just another tier. And you know, uh, effectively it's just a an afterthought, a musical chairs of Yang, Wiley and Garcia. So what do we know as we head into this final week? And by the way, Early polls are open in New York. People are already voting. We know that Eric Adams is the favorite. We know that he is the chosen one amongst the current New York City power structure. And a reminder about power structures. Everybody wants to topple them unless you're in the middle of it. And if you're benefiting from it, if you're benefiting from a power structure, then Boy, howdy, do you want somebody who's going to come in and basically keep everything the same? 
We also know that Eric Adams was not hurt by any of the debates, not that he did particularly poorly in any of them, and he has not been hurt by this controversy which popped up over the last week, questioning whether or not he actually even lives in New York. Apparently, Fort Lee, New Jersey, cannot stop the momentum of Eric Adams, at least for now. That being said, let's end this segment with one major caveat. This is a ranked choice election. A lot of top pollsters have stayed away from this race because they don't want to get something loud wrong in a ranked choice election. So, if that's the case, then let's maybe put a little pinch of salt on some of these numbers. But even if it's seasoned up a little bit, it's great, delicious news if you are a fan of Eric Adams. What is Cocaine Mitch's plan on infrastructure? All right, I'm going to boil it down according to Politico. The plan is to do a deal with the White House and kill the back half of any plans that Joe Biden has leading up to the midterms. Politico is reporting that Mitch may well now endorse the new bipartisan framework that is currently being cooked up by senators like Joe Manchin, Kirsten Sinema, Mitt Romney, and others. Why would he do that? All we hear about is how Mitch McConnell is obstructionist. Mitch McConnell doesn't want uh, uh, the, the Biden White House to have anything. They just want to block agenda, block agenda, block agenda, block agenda. Why on earth would Mitch McConnell want to do something like this? Here's why according to Politico. If the Republicans agree to spend over a trillion dollars on this infrastructure package, that would essentially, according to this line of thinking, sap any kind of momentum that Democrats had on doing the second half of Biden's agenda for infrastructure. Remember, this one started at 2.4 trillion, the other one's around 2 trillion as well. So if they can make a bipartisan deal here, Mitch McConnell believes that the other stuff is just not going to happen. I would also say that at that point, if there's anything that Mitch McConnell can go back to Republicans and say, hey, this was worth making a deal with the Democrats on, It's roads and bridges and tunnels. Again, there's a reason why infrastructure is, you know, bipartisanly popular, but also never happens because it is so popular with both parties that it'll never go alone. (laughs) You know, it, it feels like a sure passage. So people will always try to staple things to it, assuming that that's its ticket through. So what is this deal so far? 
Well, the bipartisan framework that uh, Portman Senators Portman and Cinema are developing totals about nine hundred and seventy-three billion over five years, or one point two trillion over eight years, including five hundred and seventy-nine billion in new spending. That is more new spending than Senator Shelley Moore uh, Capito had agreed to when she was negotiating with Biden about a week and a half ago. So there has been progress by the Democrats. But how long are they going to have? Because remember, for a lot of a lot of Democrats, including these progressives, because these progressives are sitting here on the sidelines. They didn't get what they wanted with $15 minimum wage. They haven't gotten what they wanted in pretty much any other legislative element so far. They want to get to the stuff that they care about. And they are afraid that all of this, all of the back and forth between the, the, the Democrats and the Republicans is a smokescreen by the Republicans to run out the clock. The progressives assume that they might lose the House or the Senate or both by the time that, you know, the midterms roll around in a year. And even if they don't, the window for any kind of uh, a tough vote that people would have to really think hard about to to, you know, put their name on is, you know, that window is rapidly closing because as we get closer to primaries for the midterms and stuff like that, everybody's going to start to clam up a little bit. Nobody likes to make a bold move right before voters are going to go to the polls. So some of the Democrats want this, whatever's going to happen, to to go really, really, really fast. And we have some, some breaking news here. The White House is giving that bipartisan group 10 days to strike a deal with them on infrastructure. At least that is according to what the House Democrats were told. It is the moment that you, you, the listener, have demanded and will receive. Yes, I'm heading on out to New York City this weekend. I'm covering everybody that I can possibly go see while I'm there for the last few days of the Democratic primary contest. Gonna see me some Adams, gonna see me some Wiley, some Garcia, some Yang. Maybe even some Stringer. I I don't know if I'll have time, but we're gonna figure it out. But you want to know who else I'm going to see? You. If you are in the New York City area. Because we are having our first PX3 meetup since... God, I don't even know when the last... I guess Politicon? I mean, it's been a minute. uh, uh, Certainly over a year since we've had any kind of meetup, and it happens this Sunday. Here's where you're going to go. It's called Carragher's, that is C-A-R-R-A-G-H-E-R-S. It is at 228 West 
39th Street, New York, New York, 10018. Again, that is Carragher's at 228 West 39th Street, New York, New York, 10018. I'll get there around 7. Might be there a little bit before, but uh, anybody who's there, I'd love to say hello. Love to meet up with the New York City PX3 faithful. I mean, we had a really good turnout in Nashville. I don't know how New York does it. I don't know how New York does it. Does New York got any love for PX3? We're going to find out on Sunday. And the reason why I'm going to be able to do that, the reason why I, I get to haul my ass all the way up to, 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 to New York, I get to run around the five boroughs, I get to buy folks drinks on Sunday night at Carragher's is because you guys support me at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Now is a great time to show your appreciation for the podcast. Uh, it's going to be the opportunity that you have to get the two bonus podcasts that come out each and every week, the Sunday, Sunday, Sunday edition that shows up first thing every Monday morning. And then, of course, there is the late edition. That is the latest news that goes out that week will happen on that Thursday show because we record our Friday show a little bit earlier. TakePoliticsSeriously.com is where you go to support the show. Thank you to everybody who does it. And if you're in New York, meet me at Carragher's. 7 p.m., 228 West 39th Street. I'll see you there. A few weeks ago, I posited that there was room in the recall election of Governor Gavin Newsom for a YouTuber. My pitch was this. If you have scratched and clawed your way to relevance amongst a mass of attention seekers once, then you're basically pre-qualified for politics. After that, YouTubers have a tremendous work ethic. Content creation and community management is very hard work. Trust me. And today, we have a YouTuber who will do Exactly as I prophesized. In fact, he's doing it right now. Kevin Paffraff, a.k.a. Meet Kevin, is a 29-year-old real estate and investment mogul who has announced his intention to replace Gavin Newsom as the governor of California. And he joins us right now. Welcome to the show, Kevin. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here. Now, I did a, a episode a while ago uh, just as the recall was qualifying and uh, uh, this was, was becoming a reality. And obviously, the first thing that anyone's going to think of when the recall happens is when the last recall happened. And that was dominated by a celebrity in, in Arnold Schwarzenegger. And the biggest thing that in my mind, being somebody that is, is attuned to the Internet, was like, well, celebrity is different in in 2021 much different than it is in in 2003 and when you look at the amount of people that you actually need to motivate to go vote in a recall election the idea of a youtube celebrity and influencer taking this seriously uh is something that i thought was highly realistic and might actually suit the skill set 
of a YouTuber or, or an influencer because it's a lot of hard work and messaging, and that's what a lot of politics is. So let me ask you, basically, why did you decide to get into this race? Absolutely. I think you've nailed it. It is all about messaging, but it's also about the grind that being able to uh, like on YouTube. And I'm not trying to compare YouTube 100 percent to politics, but I mean, the reality is when you're self-employed, it seems like you're always working. <laughs> so I know yeah. I'll outwork any previous governor before me and we'll actually fix the problems in California. But why why am I getting into the race? I'm getting in because I'm tired of the problems that we have in California. California is such a beautiful place, such beautiful scenery around, but it's all getting ruined by the homelessness, the graffiti, the trash, the housing on affordability, people leaving this state, voting with their feet, uh, getting away from overbearing business regulation, traffic and taxes and or schooling at that. So we're paying so much money to be in this state. It's a beautiful state, but it's so mismanaged that it just feels painful to stay. Uh, but rather than leave, I thought, why not try to make a change for everyone? Because we've got some great ideas that we know will make some amazing improvements to California. Uh, and I should note that that I am I am one of those. I literally just moved two months ago from Oakland to Austin, Texas uh, uh, in, uh, you know, not necessarily because of the recall stuff, mostly because of the housing stuff. But we can get into that a little bit later. I want to get into yeah, your- I want to bring you back. <laughs> yeah, well, sure. No, I really what I'm angling for is when you do your stump speech and you're like, I spoke to a podcaster and he left like that's really what I want. I just want to spot in your stump speech. Uh, <laughs> Where are your political leanings and how much did politics uh, come into your channel before you started this? Yeah, my channel has always been solution driven, and that's exactly how my policies are as well. The last thing I care about is Democrat or Republican. I care about helping all Californians, and that's the same thing that I've done on my channel on my channel. I don't really care if the Democrats are saying something or the Republicans are saying something. I'm trying to provide what's the bottom line impact to the people who are watching the show. And the same is true about my policies for California. What are the problems we have? Well, let's start with homelessness. How can we solve that? Well, here's a, an initial 60 day plan, a state of emergency plan to end homelessness on our streets. And then it turns into a longer two year transition in solving and ending homelessness entirely. And so we did that for each piece of the issues we have whether that's traffic, future schools, future courts, future policing. And we have various different parts for each of our 20 part plan. Uh, for those of you who are not, for those listeners who are not familiar with your content, uh, uh, what did you get started doing and, and what can people expect if they interact with Meet Kevin on YouTube? Yeah, on YouTube, most of my content focuses around any financial news of the day. So if that's momentum stocks, if it's cryptocurrency, if it's real estate, uh, if it's about building wealth and tutorials, or it's about uh, a, an infrastructure package update on, hey, here's an update regarding the child tax credit. That's the information I provide. So anything that links back to people being able to build wealth and money. I've recently started maybe one in 10 videos. I'll throw in a political video. I don't want to throw too many in because I want to, I want to stay true to the channel, which is finance. And so every maybe 10th video, we'll post a campaign video or a vlog or us interviewing folks uh, or, or even our opinions on, for example, guns, gun violence, gun control, and uh, our opinions on exactly how to solve gun issues. How did you start doing YouTube? What was, what was the first thing and what were you doing before that? 
Yeah. So I, in 2010, I became a real estate agent, two years later, a real estate broker. What got me into YouTube, oops, uh, what got me into YouTube was me wanting to really make sure that I could share my vision of, of a way that people could invest and build wealth. And the reason that came or YouTube became so instrumental in this is I used to take clients to the coffee shop and sit down with them for three hours, explaining to them, here's how to buy real estate below market value. Here's how to fix up real estate. Here's how to rent it out. Here's how to build wealth. Here's how to get pre-approved, all of that. Uh, And so all I did was I noticed in 2017, another YouTuber was making real estate content. And I thought, wait a minute, that's different from how I explain real estate or my beliefs. Well, what's stopping me from sharing my opinions then? So that's where it started. Uh, and then I, I guess your, your, your drive to just kind of do it, uh, as, as well as it can is, is what leads to, and, and people can't see this, but we are, we are on your YouTube set. Uh, uh, you are in, in gorgeous resplendent lighting. You've got the whole, the whole thing like, uh, uh, that, that is, is just part of your, your personality to say, if I'm going to do it, I want to do it on a level that looks and, you know, signals to everybody that you know what you're doing. Yeah, I mean, and, and I think that applies to everything. I mean, now I also recognize perfect as the enemy of good. So for me, I'm just all about action. And and so if somebody looks back at my channel, for example, you're, you mentioned the set here. The set is like a three-year progression. of It looks great now, but it started as an idea. Yeah. And then it's, okay, let's execute. Oh, now we hit a problem. Well, let's change that and solve it this way. And it becomes better over time. I know that's exactly what the California government needs as well, is somebody to start making changes. And if something's broken, we'll fix it. And that's uh, that's my plan for finally making California a better place. Uh, how dialed into state politics had you been before Gavin Newsom? Or is this a Gavin-specific fascination? Well, I wouldn't call it a Gavin fascination. It's more of a, a an upsetness or frustration sure, with Gavin. Sure. But my my tuning into California politics has been mostly on legislative action. So I'll track bills uh, and then I'll see their progress in reality. For example, I tracked the assembly bill for ADUs, for accessory dwelling units, and us being able to have two uh, ADUs in real estate. Real estate obviously relates. It's a relatable topic uh, to what I do uh, as my, uh, you know, as a real estate broker. And uh, what I noticed was the bill sounded great. Hey, you can have a junior accessory dwelling unit. You can have, you could turn your garage into an ADU. Uh, Cities have to get back to you within 60 days on approval. And so I took a project and I went through the process and the process is nowhere near as simple as the bill outlines because cities have all of their overlays. They, instead of a, a, 60 day turn time will make you wait 90 to 120 days. They don't respect the state timeframes. And this personal experience, seeing bills go from draft and idea to negotiation to in law, and then how cities are actually interpreting them, led me to get even more frustrated with how laws get handled uh, or actually integrated into our system in California. And this is where I spawned my idea of essentially having a statewide single point of contact building and safety department where we could streamline housing. 95% of permits can get approved by architects, engineers, and contractors. We could verify it or document that on block using blockchain technology. People have got liability insurance, which will verify and bond they're bonded and they take liability. And uh, we finally begin to streamline housing in the state where we can build more and faster. So the point of what I'm saying here is I'll watch bills in California get negotiated, get introduced, 
see them then actually go into effect. And I see where they're falling apart and failing. And I want to fix that. And that's what my entire 20 part plan is built on is seeing bills come in, fail in execution, have a good idea, but fail in execution. And we just need to start fixing the things that are broken. All right. So you got housing. That was one reason why I left. The second reason why I left was my wife's an asthmatic and we lived up in the Bay Area and the forest fires went from something that happened maybe once every two years to definitely every single year to now we were getting three or four uh, uh, every year. And while I'm not denying climate change, I do think that it is an absolute problem that we have to that we have to deal with. It certainly seemed like PG&E was uh, letting things light on fire every uh, every every year. And that was, uh, you know, becoming a major issue to to us thinking about about staying there. How would you fix the fires, Kevin? Big, big issue. You're totally right. Look, one of the reasons we have so many issues with our infrastructure is because as Californians, we want to go 100% green, but the problem is the way our government is instituting it is in such a way that existing infrastructure is blocked by so much regulation from actually improving their existing infrastructure. So improving existing gas lines, electrical transmission lines, uh, existing utility grids is very, very difficult because if it's, if it's anything that remotely looks like it's supporting fossil fuels, which our electricity grid still uses, then it does not get prioritized in upgrading. And so what happens is we have these really old utility grids that deserve to be upgraded. They could be much more efficient, could be much safer, but the government is standing in the way. We've got to fix that. We got to make it so that we can go green, but not have crappy old infrastructure that's dated and inefficient. And we could easily upgrade parts of either electrical systems or gas systems or both without investing in them for the next 50 years but upgrading them for the next 20 years while we're still in our green transition. So that's one part. Government is in the way of improving a lot of these systems that exist. The second problem is the government isn't conducting enough controlled burns to actually minimize wildfires when they occur. See, the neat thing about controlled burns is we don't have to burn everything. We just have to burn certain areas, burn certain radiuses. And what we can do then is we can control which tree species are affected, which animals are affected, which endangered species are actually getting protected by our controlled burns. We could limit the carbon output uh, with controlled burns, and we spend way less money by using more controlled burns. We need to burn around 2 million acres a year. Right now, we're barely burning 20,000 acres a year. And this is a Gavin Newsom failure that needs to get fixed. Let me uh, pull back meta before we go back into some of the the issues that you have. Uh, how much are you a student of politics? And are uh, when you when you looked at the idea of running, is yeah. there any campaign from the past or politician that that whether or not they are an exact ideological alignment with you that mm. that you said you know I want to run a campaign, I want to run a race like that, I want to I want to bring this kind of message or this kind of energy, either contemporary or in the past. I think you get a little bit from history and a little bit from every campaign. I think there's something you can learn from everyone and everyone's style and how they campaign. 
Uh, and I think you have to look at all elections and see, hey, what worked best here? And, and those are some of the things that we're taking. We're taking bits and pieces from all sides. We don't care if it's Republican, Democrat, doesn't matter if they ran a successful campaign or unsuccessful campaign. We want to learn from it. So in terms of being a student of politics, I'm a poli sci major, also uh, started my major out in econ, but ended up graduating in poli sci. Really excited. I love the idea of serving my state and my community. It's, it's one of the reasons I'm running. It's the biggest reason I'm running is trying to fix what is so broken because California has given me so much. Uh, and I feel like many people are being prevented uh, from having that same opportunity with the amount of overregulation that we have and the amount of problems that we have that are leading people to go to other states. So yeah, you know, other campaigns, you know, I, I try to focus a lot on our campaign, but we do whatever we can to make sure we uh, we have the highest chance of getting into office so we can serve California and fix it. Because the thing that popped into my head when I was watching your watching your video, uh, mm-hmm. uh, and and hopefully you you take this in in the spirit that it's offered, uh, uh, sure. was was Ross Perot, who, who uh, specifically his first presidential run in in 1992 when he was mm. very dialed into the idea of here are solutions, common sense solutions yeah. to these problems. Uh, and, and that's the only thing that I could say in watching your stuff was like, you've got, you got 20 points. That's great. You are, you are overproving that as a YouTuber, you, you are somebody who is knowledgeable on these issues. Uh, because I think that if anybody else put these, you know, words out, uh, uh, you wouldn't have any of the baggage that people have about internet stuff, which I think is unfair. And you're, you're yeah. obviously going to have to make up with, uh, with, with hustling, but there's too many points. You need one. You know, you're a YouTuber. You know better than anybody that you need one headline and you need one one uh, a screen grab. So amongst everything that you have here, what is the single issue? What is the five words Gosh, that defines yeah. your 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 campaign? You know, it's almost like you're asking for us us for a campaign slogan. And I have to tell you, that has been the hardest thing, because when I say The number one thing is taxation. People say, well, how are you going to pay for that uh, if you lower taxes? All right. You have to make the state more efficient. If I say solve housing, people say, "Okay, well, how are you going to deal with traffic? Or if I say solve homelessness, people say, well, how do you deal with mental health? The issue is there are so many problems. I think the slogan of my campaign is honestly, it's the 20 part plan. (laughs) (laughs) but you know you i mean go look at all your videos i'll guarantee you that the most popular ones are the ones that have super easy to digest or or very very uh, workmanlike uh, understandable searchable five word uh uh, titles right gavin newsom exposed (laughs) there we go now we're talking now we're talking Uh, uh, were, were you surprised that this uh, recall happened or, or no, not you- at all. It's, it's the, the way the pandemic has been managed, uh, the way the state has been managed. It, really what we're doing is we're taking a massive funnel and we're throwing a many millions or billions of dollars into the top of the funnel. And for every 10 to $12, the state spends people right now are receiving about $1 of benefit. And that's very broken. It's very inefficient. It's uh, perfectly demonstrated or exemplified with the high-speed rail. Why are we spending $125 million a mile to build a high-speed rail when we could be building tunnels for $10 million a mile and we could put those tunnels in high-traffic areas where we would actually alleviate a lot of traffic and minimize problems that we actually have? People want to travel Bakersfield to NorCal fine. But right now we've got serious issues that are holding up GDP and that's traffic. Just look at the 405. 
I mean, that might be the only uh, a benefit of, of of the pandemic, quite quite frankly, in in uh, the California major <laughs> metropolitan areas, was the fact that there was literally no traffic for about a year, which was its own weird zombie movie. Uh, uh, what do you think coming out of this are the the biggest issues? Uh, you know, based on how California and Gavin handled uh, the pandemic with with the lockdowns, which I know it, it's a very health conscious area. It was very popular. When it happened, you know, in the Bay Area, they locked down faster than anybody had and stayed down, locked down tighter for for, for longer than than most of the country. But uh, it does have its cost. What do you think those are? The cost of the lockdowns have been pretty rough. I mean, we've lost one third of restaurants in California and many more thousands of people who now have to retool for a new job, because when you have new restaurants, when you have uh, so many business bankruptcies and restaurants leaving the state or closing down. What you also have are a whole lack of of uh, restaurants for folks to work for or for. And so what you end up with is the situation where you have a lot of waiters and waitresses, for example, who might have to retool to go into a completely different field to actually be able to get ahead and make a living in California, where it's already unaffordable to live. It's already unaffordable to try to uh, grow a business. But if you can, great, you're probably working two or three jobs to pull that off. So it's no surprise that we've got one third of Californians on Medi-Cal when it's so expensive and so many businesses uh, have gone under. And so now when people go through a retooling process, that becomes difficult as well, because how do you go to schooling without getting, how do you go to school without getting debt or going into debt? How do you re-educate while still paying your bills at the same time? It's very difficult to transition. And so this is where we've also come up with our future schools program where folks will be able to go to future schools and at 14 have a decision to graduate by 18 debt-free and with an education in a financial literacy, uh, a background in personal sales skills and business skills, business communication skills, and be able to ultimately get into a career at 18. And if folks who are jobless are looking for a new job, we can also enroll them in future schools. So that way it's not just high schoolers going through this combination vocational high school college, but anyone, folks in prisons can use the future school systems. That reduces our costs and, and uh, lack of functionality in prisons. Folks who are on welfare can use the future school systems. We got to get people educated and reintegrated. We don't want to chase them out of California. Unfortunately, that's what the current government is doing is chasing folks out. Now, my real concern, and this is the big one, is what's going to happen with COVID 2.0. When 2.0 rolls around and we still have this lockdown or the uh, state of emergency in effect, is Gavin Newsom going to bring those lockdowns back and bankrupt more businesses? And and just to catch people up, this is a a a, a current state uh, issue that we have not covered a lot on the podcast. But Gavin has not relinquished his state of emergency that he put in during COVID, which has begun to make people wonder, you know, oh, why? A- absolutely, are you going to let it up? Because it seems like things are opening up again. Bingo. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, uh, another major issue in California and something that is is often brought up uh, not only inside the state, but also by people who kind of uh, see sort of a parody version of it from uh, media outside is the homelessness. Uh, it is, I believe, I think, number two on your on your 20 point plan, if I am if I have my notes uh, uh, correct. So it's something I, I know you are focused on. What would you do with California homelessness? 
Yes. Homelessness is a massive issue and it's also multifaceted, much like any of the other problems that we have. So the way to solve homelessness, in our opinion, and we believe this is the correct option and it'd be very successful in California. The first thing that we have to do is we have to show compassion to the fact that people are dying on our streets and they're going without health and security. And so we need to provide that. And the way we can provide that is by providing three meals a day, showers, hygiene products, access to a clean bathroom, basic human needs we need to provide for. And we do that where homeless are or where where they presently are. And we can do that by deploying the National Guard, declaring a state of emergency, deploying the National Guard, not with weapons, but with compassion to service everyone who's presently homeless. I'm going to do that for the first 30 days, 30 to 60 days. While we are on the ground helping individuals, we're also going to build 80 emergency facilities throughout the state. Each facility would house about 2,000 homeless individuals, and at each site, you would have the benefit of immediate access to mental health care, something that people do not have immediate access to now. Food, bathrooms, uh, somebody's own essentially small house or some sort of dwelling structure for individuals to actually be housed in. National Guard will build this all within our first 60 days. Again, emergency powers, emergency action to get this done quickly. If we can build fast in Afghanistan, we can build fast in California. And so that's what we're going to do. Then after 60 days, we want to transition as many folks as possible to these facilities where they can be rehabilitated, where they have free living, where they get fed and they have an opportunity to get the help they need and get reintegrated in society. This is how we solve homelessness. But homelessness as as an issue more broadly is going to take a couple of years, if not longer to solve. It's going to be a, a long term project. And the way we solve that is with better education more job opportunities locally, not scaring businesses out of the state, being open to people coming to California while at the same time providing really good education, better transportation, and better and more affordable housing opportunities in new areas. That is a lot of uh, uh, executive action. That That is certainly, it uh, sounds like a, 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 a pricey situation. You are very... Uh, you know, a fiscally responsible and, and, you know, your number one plan here is, you know, no state income tax on the first quarter million of, of income. So I could, I could understand how you alluded to before with some of these programs, how does it get paid for? Yeah, absolutely. So the first thing that we need to do is issue a California transition bond. And so what we're going to do is we're going to raise money and invest in California. I view California as Uh, A fixer upper, kind of like in real estate, it's a fixer upper and it needs some injection of capital to fix it with new ideas and a new game plan. However, we expect that our transition is going to be so profitable for California that we'll not only be able to eliminate state income taxes, but we'll also end up more profitable to where in the long run we can lower other costs of the government getting in the way of Californians uh, and make the government so much more efficient by actually having systems that work. Right now, we have too much of a fragmented network. We've got over two, uh, 480 cities in the state, all trying to solve their own problems, their own homeless programs, their own problems, their own solutions for housing and building and safety. And it's not working. We've got to work together as a state, as one unified network to solve homelessness from a state level, solve building and safety from a state level with you know minor overlays for protecting design review in individual cities. But everything should be controlled uh, or, or at least guided by the state with 
all of our plans, whether that's future schools, future policing, future courts, uh, and creating a more efficient government. Quick example, when we combine college and high school, we're going to be able to lower costs substantially in our future schools, which we expect will be about 70% of schools. So that way folks still have the traditional option, regular high school, regular college will still be an option. But by combining high schools and college and making the process more efficient, by having businesses teach our teachers what they should be teaching and by working with nonprofits and activists in terms of what uh, what what our society needs in terms of new jobs. Now we're providing educated students where they need to be with the skills that they need to have brought to us by the business, uh, by businesses in California. But we're also going to streamline the processes and the ways people learn in future schools by utilizing things like online lecturing that could be recorded. So one teacher all of a sudden giving a lecture once can teach 5,000 students instead of 30 students at a time. And we could spend more time in a classroom actually learning hands-on skills. And so by combining, just for example, college and high school in 70% of cases, we think we could shave somewhere around 30 to $40 billion per year in the state by being more efficient and providing a better service. It's going to take time to get there, but that's just one example. If there's an endorsement either by a national or state figure that you would be most uh, excited to receive because it would benefit your campaign, who would it be? Wow. Uh, golly. I mean, uh, <laughs> at this point, I would say really one of the, the strongest endorsements we could get would be somebody who's left California and seen the frustrations and problems with business, with uh, starting a business, with running a business, with uh, having employees. And uh, of course, smaller companies, medium sized companies that are leaving the state would be great endorsements. But if it was a more national figure, I'd probably have to go in the direction of somebody like Elon Musk, who looks and says, wow, these are exactly the solutions that we need in the state. This is exactly why I left California. These are uh, the priorities that could solve California. That would be phenomenal. So you are I mean, future is a word that you use a lot. Like, yes. like that, that is, that is what you are. You are, you have, you have your eyes on, like, let's, let's try to top down, uh, build something going forward. That's going to benefit us more. Is, is there, is there one shining example of an old kind of solution that continues to hurt us just systemically, uh, or, uh, hurt the state of California systemically? Gosh, I mean, there's so much. Uh, I mean, everything is is a mess. I think uh, a really good example is really the building and safety department issue, which we touched on that a little bit earlier. But why is it that if somebody wants to uh, add a window or or uh, remodel their home and they want to go through planning with building and safety, they're stuck getting an architect. Getting a quote from an architect takes two weeks. Getting an architect to do the work takes four weeks. Getting the city to review those plans takes another at least six weeks, if not more. All of a sudden, people are waiting three, four months. In the meantime, housing is sitting vacant. And this really creates the massive housing problem we have in California, because when we look around, why is it that strip malls are empty? Why is it that malls are empty? Why is it that there are vacant lots? Why are there homes that aren't remodeled? Well, it's because the building and safety process is so punitive and expensive and complicated to get through, then most people say, it's just not worth it. We're better off leaving units vacant 
then we are trying to actually invest the money up front and working with the city to solve problems and provide more housing. And that's probably the biggest disgrace in California right now. And it's something that would be a day one emergency for me to solve. I believe the last time that I checked, the average home price in California was somewhere around $750,000. And that, again, the average. So if there's a few that are a dollar, then there's a few that are, you know, much more than that. I'm not really great at math. Uh, Where do you think it should be as somebody that was a a real estate agent, is a real estate agent and, and knows this, knows this world? Where should it be at? How much is it inflated because of governmental decisions and bureaucracy? Yeah, well, currently our uh, median home price is about twice as expensive as the rest of the country. Uh, so it's very difficult for somebody making a median income. It's almost impossible. Uh, it's very difficult for a family making a median income to afford a home here. Uh, a, a home uh, is around seven hundred fifty to 800000 right now for a median home price is about 10 times as expensive as somebody's median income. Uh, throughout the rest of the country, you're sitting at about five times. So there's that 2x. The way to solve this isn't to say, oh, let's lower all home prices in San Francisco. The way to solve it isn't by instituting more rent control that traps people into a circle of renting and not building wealth. The way to solve it is very simple. We need more options for people. And so the way you have more options is you do convert those malls, the strip malls. You do get empty buildings filled. And then in areas where we don't have building yet, we build more. We build new communities, new developments, uh, thousands, 500,000 homes a year is really what we need to get out of this housing crisis. And that doesn't mean, again, adding a bunch of homes to L.A., that means a new community maybe outside of L.A. that's perhaps connected with a better infrastructure system, utilizing tunnels, utilizing wind farm and uh, solar farm energy. And all of a sudden we're creating housing where otherwise people previously didn't live. And uh, they can travel there in a convenient way. They could still get downtown in a convenient way because we've solved transportation and we can build quickly because we're getting the government out of the way of the free market to be able to s- supply the buildings that we need. And, and that's how we give people options. So sure, are we still going to have a million, a million dollar homes in San Francisco? Of course, but at least folks will have the opportunity to move to different areas within California. So that way people aren't leaving to Texas or Arizona anymore. They're staying within California. So if it's, if it's double what the national average is, then you should think it should be much closer to the national average. California will always have a a price premium for its beaches, for its weather, for its interconnectedness, uh, as and and that will stay as long as we don't continue down this path, this path of really destroying California. And it's it's really beginning to get worse now than ever before, because what we're seeing is. More and more adults from all wealth incomes, whether they're low income, middle income or high income after this pandemic are leaving to Texas, Florida, Arizona, Nevada. And this begins not only a flight of talent, a flight of entrepreneurs, a flight of jobs, a flight of businesses. But the more we have that flight, the lower California's GDP becomes, the lower our tax revenues become, the less money we have for roads and schools. And then all of a sudden our roads and our our traffic becomes worse. (laughs) Our schooling becomes worse and things actually get worse and not better. We can make California better with more people, not less. Uh, So that's a big priority for my campaign. Uh, Well, it is a campaign that I'm, I'm, I'm certain 
everybody listening is very excited to have heard about, uh, specifically everybody in California, Kevin Pafraff, uh, meet Kevin on YouTube. I would encourage everybody to go listen to your 20 part plan. I'm going to stay on you. We need a slogan. We, we got it. Like you can't be this polished on everything and have all, all the information and not have, not have that little, the, the, the grab. You got that thing that you can put on the mug. You got it. You got it. <laughs> you got to do it. Uh, uh, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to speak with us. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. We will work on that slogan. And if any of your fans have suggestions, tweet me at real meet Kevin. <laughs> I want to hear it. And that will wrap it up for us today. Uh, Politics, Politics, Politics is written and recorded by me, Justin Robert Young. If you would like to show your support for uh, Meet Kevin, Kevin Paffraff, then uh, please head on over to px3guest.com. Of course, you can email me, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Our Twitter is px3tweets, and our Twitch is px3live.com. We are live there Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Our newsletter is px3newsletter.com. And our podcast, so you can share this with the world, our podcast page is found at px3podcast.com. Our merch is politicsmerch.com. I'm sure I'm going to see a few COVID shots equals body shots t-shirts on Sunday at Carragher's. Very excited for that. You can also hit us up on PayPal, paypal.me slash payjury. Venmo, justin-young-20. Our cash app is px3cash. And you can send me anything you would like physically in the mail to P.O. Box 153184, Austin, Texas, 787-15. The way that you support the show, if you want to get uh, custom content, is by going to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Our $3 tier gets you two bonus podcasts per week. The Sunday, Sunday, Sunday edition, which gives you our breakdown of all the Sunday shows and a Rosetta Stone to guide you through the narratives that will define the week in in, in politics. And then, of course, our late edition. That it comes out on Thursday. It is the latest news we cover in our PX3 schedule. That is all available to you at the $3 tier. But if you're at the $10 tier, you get your, not only do you get those podcasts I just mentioned, you also get your name read at the end of the show in the Titanic $10 tier. Headphones, Neil, Dr. G, the other half of Whiskey Wednesday, Idris. The Government Unfiltered Podcast, 100 Mile Runner, Berkeley, Stephen, Kathy, Max, Zombie, Doc, D. Really? Methuselah, Honeythuckle. The Gen, Middle-Aged Mike, Dotcom Junkie, Calamity Zab, D. Laser, Lord Scale, De Quince, and Neely Third, And Gloria Young for King of the New World Order. Utah, Jimmy, Montana, Chad. David, Snuffies, Off Route 44. Charles, David, Olin, and Angela, T.L., Miranda Janelle, Jenny, Robert, Casey, Paul, the most conscientious nonpartisan listeners, Brad, D Laser, just another pilot, Will, Frozen Summers, J Pink, and Andrew. One last time, if you want to get your name read on this show, only one place to do it. Take politics seriously.com. 
As I mentioned at the very beginning of the show, we are now going to uh, play a trailer for uh, the, the the brand new podcast that I, uh, I I worked on with Dog and Pony Show Audio. It's called World's Greatest Con. It stars Brian Brushwood. It is very much... Uh, uh, a very Brian show. In fact, it's going to be something that if you're familiar with the work of Brian Brushwood, it'll be like nothing you've ever heard before out of his mouth. Uh, We're going to put the full first episode in the feed right after this episode goes live as well. But, uh, but here we go. Uh, uh, Until next time, this is your old pal, Justin Robert Young saying, Some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more discuss politics. But this, this is the only show that dares discuss I think I was 20 years old when this happened, and it was outside of a Home Depot parking lot. It was a white van pulls up, dude jumps out in a vague uniform, not really a uniform, but the kind of jumpsuit that anyone from an exterminator to a Ghostbuster would wear. Spun this tale about how they had these studio monitors, high-end monitors that were supposed to go to a local strip club. I did know the strip club, so I knew that part wasn't a lie. And it seemed like it wasn't a lie that they were fancy monitors. I mean, they, they looked like big speakers. Dude even showed me a magazine article, pointed to a price that said $2,000 per unit. Told me a story about how they were supposed to be four ordered, but he had six instead and the rest were going to be, you know, shipped back. And I thought to myself, there is no way any of this is true. These are stolen speakers. And in that moment... I had already begun to rationalize. I was already thinking about sweet class warfare while getting ahead myself. Within 15 minutes, we both agreed on $300 for the pair of them. I went to the ATM with these assholes. I withdrew the money, gave them $300 and thanked them and then turned to my friend and mouthed the words, oh my God, because I had just stuck it to the man. I had just bought stolen studio monitors and I was so freaking stoked. Brought them home, turned it up very loud. Very impressed with myself. Three weeks later, the girl I'm dating, I meet her brother. He's a student at law school and I'm a bit shy about it, but I bring up the fact, I bring up the fact that I bought some speakers and I get to the part where I mentioned the white van and he nods and grins and says, oh wow, so you saw one of those guys. And I was like, what, one of those guys? What are you talking about? He's like, yeah, yeah, those guys, they sell the garbage speakers, they're garbage, but they make you think they're stolen. And that's when I realized I'd gotten got. I'd let the fantasy overtake the reality. 
The reality was I was giddy at the prospect of sticking one to the man. The most beautiful thing about a con is how little the con man needs to do in the moment. He just has to set up the story because the person who's going to obliterate his morals for the fantasy, that's me. And I won't find out for three weeks until I meet my girlfriend's brother. There's a common phrase in my line of work. You can't con an honest John. It's because the honest John is somebody in that situation wouldn't even consider letting his morals be compromised. Wouldn't even occur to him. He would walk right past it. How many of us are truly honest all of the time? Most of the effort of the con man goes into that first impression, the tableau. Sometimes it's a crisis or a fantasy. Whatever it is, it's personally tailored to you, the mark. I've spent a lifetime studying these schemes. Which really means I've spent a lifetime studying desires, those very urges that make us human. You know, when I'm hanging out, sometimes a few beers in, somebody will ask me, what is the world's greatest con? It's a good question. I don't know if this is it, but here's a pretty good place to start. It's 1943. Allied forces are about to land their first boots on mainland Europe. If you do it successfully, you could defeat the Nazis. Botch it, and you allow the fascist war machine to keep on rolling. In a smoke-filled London basement sits a gang of con men. Now, they don't call themselves con men, since they're in the British military and all, war. They're agents of deception, which, to be honest, is probably a better name than con men anyway. I'd like to be an agent of deception. Anyway, they got a plan, and if they pull this off, it will change the war. The British know that the Nazi expansion into the Eastern Front with Russia isn't going well. That means at the highest ranks of the German government, people need good news to bring the boss. That means the boss is eager to hear good news. So what if somebody fulfilled that fantasy, wrote that good news for them, put it in their hands in a way that makes them feel lucky to have it? Can't be a regular leak or a fake double agent. That's regular espionage. No one gets excited when the normal happens. That would just fall flat. Remember what we said about the tableau, all the effort into the first impression. This kind of good news? Good news that moves armies? No, 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 no. This has to be an act of God, the Lord himself, smiling on the fatherland. It needs to fall out of the sky. Literally, an officer of the Royal Marines is going to crash his plane in the Atlantic Ocean off the coast of Spain. His corpse is going to wash ashore in his pockets will be a heartbreaking tale of young love, evidence of a vibrant life snuffed out too soon, and secret documents revealing the plans of the Allied forces. Those documents will be irresistible to the Nazi intelligence that happens to live on that shore. He'd be greatly rewarded for finding it. In fact, each rung of the ladder that passes it up the chain will be rewarded for finding it. The officer will be completely fictitious. The body a corpse discarded by society. The documents, an intentional lie to devastate the German efforts. All of it to fool the ultimate mark. Someone who is most certainly not an honest John. Adolf Hitler.
Cons don't fool us because we're stupid. They fool us because we're human. And this, this might be the world's greatest con. I'm Brian Brushwood, and we're on a quest to find the world's greatest con. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this broker. <laughs> Dog and Pony Show Audio.